0: Uh, The advertised title of my talk today is Discovering the Latin Mass, but perhaps, if I may, Chairman, I shall retitle it Rediscovering the Latin Mass. I was born in 1951 in West Norwood, South London, about five miles from Westminster Cathedral, the fifth of five children. My family belonged to St Matthew's Parish Church, where my siblings and I were baptized, received our first Holy Communion, and were confirmed. You used to be able to buy a history of West Norwood, which begins with the words, Blessed is the town with no history. Although it must be said that Norwood does appear several times in the works of Charles Dickens, most notably in David Copperfield. David Copperfield's sweetheart, Dora Spenlow, lived in Norwood in a house behind Gypsy Hill Hotel not far from St Matthew's Church. West Norwood is bordered by Dulwich, Tulse Hill, Streatham and Upper Norwood. Despite its undistinguished history, West Norwood had its own distinctive character. As I soon discovered when I went to university, I was interested in acting and auditioned for a part in Julius Caesar, which was being directed by one of the professors. After I finished declaiming one of the speeches of Cassius or Brutus, I can't remember who, the professor asked me whether I grew up in South East London. Yes, I said. Are you from Upper Norwood? he asked me no i said feeling a bit crushed i'm from west norwood (laughs) i went to school in upper norwood it's true to say we didn't get out much those days (laughs) despite the narrow confines of west norwood there was another world within that london suburb with its own character namely the character of the catholic church reflected in the spiritual Liturgical, family, and social life in the Catholic parish of St. Matthew's. Our parish priest, Father Cole, was the third of just four parish priests who served St. Matthew's in his first 100 years, 1905 to 2005, giving a sense of stability in the rapidly changing 20th century. St. Matthew's Church in West Norwood was built with money from a Miss Frances Ellis. The single most important feature of St Matthew's Church in architectural and artistic terms is the statue on the west front by Joseph Cribb, the British sculptor, carver and letter cutter and apprentice of Eric Gill, working with him on west, west, Westminster Cathedral's Stations of the Cross between and 1913. And 1960. Frances Elizabeth Ellis was born into a wealthy family in Brighton in 1846 and raised as an Anglican. Apparently, she was drawn to the Catholic faith whilst staying at Ramsgate in Kent. Miss Ellis was instrumental in setting up at least 22 new Catholic churches. 22 in new Catholic churches in South London including St Bartholomew's in Norbury, where my mother and father were married in 1940. I first discovered the Mass of Ages under the tuition of my father, who had the job of training young boys to serve Mass and benediction. One of my earliest memories of this period in my life was knocking nervously on the sacristy door one Sunday morning when I was seven years old, hoping to serve as a torchbearer at the 11 o'clock some high mass for the first time. A big boy in a cassock and cotter by the name of Julian Englard his name is imprinted on my heart, opened the door, peered down at me and said, you're very small, you'll never be big enough to be an acolyte leaving me psychologically scarred for the rest of my life. (laughs) I obviously don't mean to say, in case you find that too painful to hear it was a joke. (laughs) On a much more edifying note, another of my earliest memories was the glorious music I heard at the Sun High Mass. St Matthew's polyphonic choir would practice at our home on a Monday evening. Two of my big sisters were in the choir and I loved to hear the sounds of William Byrd, Palestrina and Gregorian chant filling our home, along with the laughter, conversation and smell of cigarette smoke filtering out under the door of the music room and around our house. But on a Sunday morning, the cigarette smoke was exchanged for incense and instead of laughter and conversation, which were beautiful in their own way, I heard the Word of God. When I became a father, and with my wife Josephine here, was taking my children to Sunday Mass to sing along with the folk choir in hymns like, Give me joy in my heart, keep me praising, I was unable to put into words the sense of loss. I used to experience. As far as I was aware, the uplifting way of worshipping God which I experienced at St Matthews Church had gone forever. How I longed to share with my children the beauty of what I knew as a boy. Two Sundays ago, Ivan Hewitt, the classical music critic for the Telegraph newspaper, gave expression to a little of what I experienced as a boy in St Matthew's Church in South East London in the 1950s. He wrote, It's hard to give a sense of Bird's genius because he has no hits the way Vaughan Williams has with the Lark Ascending, or Elgar with the Enigma Variations. But just listen to his four-minute sacred piece, Are They There on Corpus, and you'll get a glimpse of it. The unexpected harmony on the word verum, like a shaft of light illuminating a miracle, opens a space in which the music moves with perfectly controlled dignity to its close. That is the essence of Byrd, he said. Ivan Hewitt's article continued, In William Byrd's day, the 1560s and 1570s, the church was still the greatest patron of music. And in his youth, English music was still part of the great stream of Catholic music-making, where the forms and styles of music were essentially the same from Munich to Rome to London. Unquote. Moving forward to the 1950s and 1960s, I can personally testify that beautifully sung Gregorian plainchant. And some of the greatest Catholic music were the common fare of Catholic churchgoers in so undistinguished a part of South London as West Norwood. The choirmaster at St Matthew's was Mariano Gervase, his stage name, otherwise known as Colin Atkin. <laughs> he was a beautiful singer and a member of the choir at Westminster Cathedral where Colin Morby, the celebrated English composer, conductor and organist, was Master of Music. My recollection of the 1950s and early 1960s is that it was a time of great faith and Catholic witness. Whether I was at school or visiting my friends in the local area, I don't remember a single instance of an adult saying anything contrary to the faith I was taught at home. My mother was a leading member of the Union of Catholic Mothers, the UCM, which she co-founded in St Matthew's Parish, soon after she and my father married in 1940. It's perhaps worth mentioning here that in 1937 the Union of Catholic Mothers gave evidence to the Burkett Inquiry. The Royal Committee of Inquiry into Abortion, chaired by Sir Norman Burkett KC. In their submission to the inquiry, Dr. Mary Cardwell, on behalf of the UCM, said that abortion was bad medicine for women and recommended better nutrition for mothers, reporting that many families in her practice had one pint of milk for the whole world week with no butter and few vegetables. My thanks, by the way, to Anne Farmer, the writer and researcher and author of By Their Fruits on Eugenics, Population Control and the Abortion Campaign for that information. It's really a must read for anyone interested in abortion in Britain. When the Society for the Protection of Unborn Children was founded in the 1960s, the UCM was part of the National Committee organising the great rallies organised by the Society in London and in other parts of Britain to protest against the Abortion Act. The same is true of the Knights of St Columba, which in the 60s and early 70s mobilised thousands of men from virtually every Catholic parish in Britain to help in organising and protecting SPUC's huge rallies and parliamentary lobbies. My father was a member of both the Knights of St Columba and the Guild of the Blessed Sacrament. His copy of the Blessed Sacrament Guild Book, published in 1921, which I inherited, begins with a preface written by Cardinal Francis Ball, Archbishop of Westminster, who says, and I quote, the association in honour of the most blessed sacrament entitled a guild or confraternity in accordance with varying local custom, ranks in dignity and importance before all other pious unions or sodalities which the Church has sanctioned and approved. This place of preeminence, he wrote, was fully recognised in England in the First Provincial Council of Westminster following the restoration of the English hierarchy. And it has recently been confirmed anew in in the Code of Canon Law. My Father's Blessed Sacrament Guild Book goes on to explain that originally instituted by Pope Paul III in 1539, the Guild was brought into being in order to counteract widespread apathy by restoring our Lord in the divine sacrament to his place of honour, and thus by seating him firmly on his royal throne in the affections of men to make him their sovereign king and master. Close quote. In 1918, Pope Benedict XV ordered that the confraternity of the Blessed Sacrament be erected in every parish throughout the Universal Church. As a boy, of course, I wasn't aware of all that history. However, what I personally saw taught me to reverence the body of Christ, the presence of God in the Eucharist. What I personally witnessed was my father and dozens of men, his friends and fellow members of the guild, dressed in their special regalia, processing behind and four of them holding up the canopy, under which our parish priest, Father Cole, would carry the Blessed Sacrament as the packed church sang hymns in honour of the living bread which comes down from heaven, whilst the burning incense enveloped us all in a cloud of fragrant smoke. Such events were an unforgettable regular catechesis of the real presence of our Blessed Lord in the parish in which I was born and grew up five miles from here. The awe and wonder instilled by such occasions in young boys like me gave us an enormous sense of privilege as we went about our humble tasks of ringing the bell and lifting the celebrants chasuble at the moment of consecration in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. Another organisation in St Matthew's Parish in the 50s and 60s was the Catholic Evidence Guild, led by a fine gentleman, Tom Rowe, who was also a mainstay of the Polyphonic Choir. He would go to Speaker's Corner on certain Sundays around the year to preach the Catholic faith. My parents had great regard for them, as I did. The Catholic Evidence Guild Handbook, published in 1922, sets out their mission clearly. The Church in her missionary work must, and in fact does use in various degrees, every one of the organs of propaganda, individual example, voice, and pen. The individual Catholic, whatever his sphere of activity, must preach by example, the most potent preaching of all, and live in the eyes of man as of God up to his high vocation. The Catholic press and Catholic writers generally, are working nobly, usually with inadequate support and often against great difficulties for their religion. The clergy, by the holiness of their lives and by direct preaching, not merely inspire their people, but influence those outside to a considerable extent. But when individual and press and pulpit have done their all, there still remain masses untouched by any of these agencies, and it is the business of the Catholic Evidence Guild to bring these masses within the reach of the Church's teaching. All of this activity we took for granted in the parish of St Matthews.
1: Not everyone was
0: involved, of course. My father certainly didn't think that speaking in London's High Park was his calling. we took it for granted that such activities were a normal part of Catholic life. It was, as I say, a time of great faith and Catholic witness. I went to secondary school at Silesian College, where I used to arrive early in the morning to serve one of the many masses taking place at little side altars in the chapel of Mary Helping Christians. Sometimes I serve the Mass of my formmaster, Father Collins, who epitomised for me order and authority. Seeing Father Collins pray before and after Mass, repeatedly kneeling, and hearing him speak the words of consecration in hushed, reverent tones, it all gave me a sense of just how important God is, that even Father Collins bows down before Him. Other priests on the teaching staff who shall remain nameless, whose irascible natures and little faults sweet schoolboys knew so well, celebrated Mass in just the same calm, devout and submissive way as Father Collins. Overall, it gave me a powerful sense of the existence of another world, beyond the ups and downs of minor injustices and occasional triumphs of day-to-day school life. Coming back down to earth, another big attraction of serving the 7.30 Mass before school was the provision of a generous cooked breakfast at 8 o'clock. The surplus from the Salesian community's breakfast served up for the altar servers in a little room in a hallowed area close to the priest's refectory. Probably it was seeing me serving Mass that prompted one or two priests to talk to me about the possibility of my training for the priesthood. And at the ripe old age of 16, following my brother's footsteps, I tried my vocation at the Silesian novitiate in Ireland, staying for a very happy six months before deciding it wasn't for me. I left the novitiate in January 1968. I went home to West Norwood and back to school at Silesian College Battersea to study for my A-Levels. Change was very much in the air, in the late 60s and early 70s. Father Cole, our parish priest in West Norwood, died in 1970, and around that time, St Matthew's beautiful polyphonic choir was disbanded on the instructions of a new young priest who was temporarily in charge and who established a pop group in the parish. Our new young priest played drums. The sacking of the choir formed part and parcel of the liturgical changes sweeping through the church at that time. My sister Frida, who was in the choir and in her early twenties, tells me that one of the choir's leading lights was so upset he joined the Russian Orthodox Church. Both the spiritual and the moral climate were changing, and the changes seemed to be coming from on high. At Silesian College, after the publication of Humanae Vitae in July 1968, a father, Colin Hamer, a heterodox Silesian priest, told us boys that the Church had changed its teaching on artificial contraception and that Pope Paul VI in permitted contraception in exceptional circumstances. He failed to explain how that was the case. And that's certainly not what the newspapers were so loudly proclaiming. And I recall that a number of my classmates sought out another priest, Father Booth, to get him to confirm and to reassure them that the church had not changed its teaching. My classmates were ordinary young lads caught up in the popular culture of the late 1960s, but I vividly remember their indignation of what Father Hamer falsely told us. Another prince also aroused the youthful indignation of my classmates when he gave a homily at a our year group deriding the words of the hymn, Sweetheart of Jesus, Font of Love and Mercy. These sentimental words were silly and unreal, he told us. Why on earth would we address Jesus as Sweetheart? That wasn't manly, he suggested. What was he talking about, my contemporaries thought at the time. It's God we're talking to. This is a hymn. Suffice it to say that back then, in the 60s, the loss of the sense of the supernatural was evident in the progressive young priests, priest's homily, but not in the young people to whom he was preaching. I recall my father's sadness when, in 1969, Pope Paul VI replaced the Tridentine Mass with a new Order of Mass. However, my father told me that we must accept it obediently. And I remember him being very concerned for the souls of some very good friends of my parents who sadly left the Church in their upset at what was happening. He went to see them to try to change their minds. As far as I was aware, the old rite of Mass, to which my father had introduced me in those altar-serving classes in the 1950s, was irrevocably gone. It was over 40 years later before I was reintroduced to the Latin Mass, not by my father this time but by my son Paul. Paul had gone to study at Campion College in Sydney, Australia's first liberal arts tertiary college, named after St Edmund Campion, of course. Whilst there, he fell deeply in love with his Catholic faith and the tradition of the Catholic Church. He and his fellow students were told by the Latin mass priests in Sydney to search their parents' attics when they went home. That's where they were likely to find the old missals of their grandparents. When Paul came home, that's exactly what he did. He found my father's missal, took immediate possession of it without discussion, and not long afterwards, he bought for me the St Andrew's Daily Missal, prop number one, which he inscribed as follows. Trust all things to Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament and to mary of Christians and you will see what miracles are. Quote, unquote, St John Bosco, happy birthday, Dad, in Christ, Paul, 20th of February 2012. Naturally, Paul's inscription put me in mind of the Chapel of mary of Christians at Silesian College, Battersea. The last school to be personally founded by St John Bosco, where 50 years before I had served the old rite at 7.30am Mass every morning for two or three years. God works in mysterious ways and my dear son had put me on the path of rediscovering the Latin Mass. I worked for the Society for the Protection of Unborn Children in Kennington and I would try to get to daily Mass either at Southwark Cathedral or Westminster Cathedral, on the way to work. Both cathedrals were convenient places to stop en route. In the meantime, Paul was urging me to go to the 8 a.m. mass at the oratory, which added at least half an hour to my my morning commute. In the end, I succumbed to Paul's promptings what explained what happened then is pretty simple to explain for the first time for nearly 50 years i was not bored distracted irritated or outraged at mass bored by the banal liturgy bored by the countless apparently unprepared sermons one heard during the week doctrinally empty but full of homely psychology and the social and political issues of the day. Distracted and irritated by the laity assuming the oros posture during the Our Father and other parts of the Mass, contrary, I understand, to the instruction of the Supreme Pontiff in 1997. Irritated by the prayers the priest added or omitted from the prescribed liturgy, and the sudden bursts into song. From priests and laity during a low mass. Outraged by the parish priest of my local church in Harrow, who came out to say mass one Sunday morning wearing an arson scarf, when the famous North London football team won the double that (laughs) year. By the way, that's the FA Cup and the Premiership Cup, for those of you who don't know. And above all, outraged by the countless occasions of irreverence and sometimes sacrilege during the distribution of Holy Communion. For the first time in nearly 50 years, as I knelt at the side of a dedicated Sir Philip Neary in the London Oratory for the 8am Latin Mass, I felt at peace. I was confident I would be experiencing none of the distractions, annoyances and the occasional senses of outrage which I had lived through at the New Order of Mass for so many decades. The opening prayers of the Mass at the foot of the altar immediately caught me up in the mystery of man's existence, both in the real natural world of the earth and in the real supernatural world of heaven. I will go in unto the altar of God, unto God who giveth joy to my youth. I will praise thee upon the harp, O God, my God why art thou cast down o my soul and why art thou disquieted within me hope thou in god for yet will i praise him who is the health of my countenance of my god maybe i was slightly distracted with worldly thoughts during the silence which reigned in the oratory during the canon of the mass but i was suddenly and powerfully moved back to my relationship with god when the priest said out loud the words nobis quoque peccatoribus and to us sinners also i'd totally forgotten about those momentary breaks in silence during the quiet parts of the old rite of the mass it took me right back to my duties as an altar server as a boy it was as if the priest was saying to me wake up there you have got something to do in a minute we're getting to the end of the canon as Ronald Knox says of these, quote, sudden emergencies, emerges, em- emergences from silence into sound, they, quote, lend to the Mass, from the unliturgical layman's point of view, a good deal of its atmosphere of mystery. When you hear it from the congregation, he writes, you feel as if the priest was being torn between two different instincts, one of which tells him that he is saying, that what he is saying is much too sacred to be said out loud, while the other tells him it's much too important not to be said out loud. First one instinct and then the other getting the master. Unquote. After going to the oratory on my way to work for Mass for a few years, I was saying prayers before Mass one morning when I was approached by Father Rupert McCarty, to whom I have not spoken before. Indeed. I knew none of the oratory priests, and was somewhat in awe of them. He said he'd seen me at the morning Masses, and he asked if I would be willing to serve Mass. I replied, it's 50 years since I last served Mass, Father, and I'm wearing trainers. <laughs> <laughs> My shoes at work. I'll train you, he said, and a few days later that's what he did. And for a few years, I served Father Michael Lang's Mass on a Monday morning, wearing black shoes, of course. This was getting towards the end of my time of working for the Society for the Protection of Unborn Children. Father Michael Lang taught me a memorable lesson on the importance of silence during Mass. It was my second time serving Father Lang's Mass, and I was very nervous. I was still learning the ropes. And I was very distracted, worrying about what I had to say or do next. I was using my St. Andrew's Missal to read the responses and to follow the propers as well as the ordinary of the Mass. After Mass, we processed to the sacristy. We bowed before this crucifix, and Father Lang turned to me and said, When you serve Mass, please don't use your Missal. When you turn the pages, it distracts me. <laughs> Please use instead the ordinary prayers of the traditional mass, Latin mass, published, of course, by the Latin Mass Society. The pages are thicker, he said, mm-hmm. and they don't make a noise. <laughs> and he advised me that I should offer up as a sacrifice not reading the Gospel and the Epistle during the Mass, which by St. Andrew's Missal had enabled me to do. Now, I don't say any of this, so I hasten to add, as a criticism of Father Lang. On the contrary, I think he's right. Silence, apart from the low murmuring of the priest's voice, promotes reverence to, quotes, so great a sacrament, unquote, as St. Robert Bellarmine puts it. Something I learned from Father Thomas Crease, excellent Uh, The Mass of the Saints, a book our son Paul presented to my wife on Mother's Day some years ago. And in that same chapter, Father Crean cites the Council of Trent, which taught, Since holy things must be treated in a holy way, and this sacrifice is of all things the most holy, The Catholic Church instituted many centuries ago the sacred canon, so that this sacrifice might be offered and understood in a worthy and reverent way. It is so pure from error, Council of says, that there is nothing in it but what breathes forth the greatest holiness and devotion, and raises up to God the minds of those who offer. For it is made from the very words of our Lord, the traditions of the Apostles and the devout ordinance of holy pontiffs. As I say, I have no doubt that Father Lang was correct in seeking to insist on absolute silence during the celebration of the Latin Mass. I want to finish with a few words connecting the loss of reverence for the Holy Eucharist, which accompanied the virtual abandonment of the Latin Mass by the Church in the 1960s with the battle against abortion in which I've been involved for the past 50 years. I note in this connection that the Latin Mass Society was founded in 1965, one year before the launch of the Society for the Protection of Unborn Children in 1966. SPUC was set up to combat David Steele's abortion bill, introduced in the 1965-1966 to session of Parliament. Now according <coughs> excuse me, According to the most conservative estimates more human beings have been killed by abortion worldwide during the past century 1.1 billion than the estimated total number of everyone killed in all the wars in recorded human history There are 330 million people live in the USA and there are 746 million people live in Europe, if a nuclear war were to wipe out the entire population of the United States and the entire population of Europe, the number of human beings killed would be less than the number of human beings killed by abortion since Our Lady appeared to the three shepherd children in Fatima in 1917. What's even worse, in my opinion, is this. As the number of abortions grows ever bigger, more and more people are saying that they agree with abortion in certain circumstances, including Catholics. According to data published by the Pew Research Center on the 23rd of May, 2022, in the United States, 69% of people who identify themselves as Catholic think that killing unborn children should be legal in certain circumstances, even though the Church teaches that abortion is, quotes, the direct murder of the innocent. Put another way, that's an estimated 43 million Catholics in the USA out of 62 million people who identify as Catholic who think that it's okay to murder babies in the womb. Nothing like this has happened before in the history of the world. And yet there's something even more precious than the sanctity of human life. And this is the divine life truly present in the Holy Eucharist, in Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity. Our greatest treasure honour is the Blessed Sacrament. St. Thomas Aquinas taught, out of reverence towards this sacrament, nothing touches it but what is consecrated. Hence the corporal and chalice are consecrated, and likewise the priest's hands for touching this sacrament. Hence, St. Thomas taught, it is not lawful for anyone else to touch it except from necessity, for instance, if it were to fall upon the ground or else, in some other case, than urgency. Who can seriously doubt that the loss of the Latin Mass to the vast majority of the Catholic world has led to this rubric being flagrantly disobeyed by priests and bishops who encourage the handling of the Eucharist by unconsecrated hands in various ways, but above all in the reception of Holy Communion in the hand. And we may ask the question, is it merely a coincidence that communion in the hand, which denies the dignity of divine life, was introduced in such an irrational way by the Church 50 to 60 years ago. And during that same period of time, legalised abortion, which denies the dignity of human life, was introduced in such a dishonest way by so many Western countries. Today we reap the bitter fruits. Human life has lost its value in human society and Christ has become shamefully abused by the Christians who should know and love him the most. And just as it is impossible to calculate the countless desecrations of the body of Christ in the sacrilegious treatment of the Holy Eucharist brought about by the practice of communion in the hand, it's impossible to number the unborn children made in the image and likeness of God, killed worldwide, not only through permissive abortion legislation, but also through abortifacient contraceptive drugs and devices and through IVF procedures. In September 2021, there was an abortion referendum in the tiny European country San Marino where 97% of the population professed the Catholic faith. 77%, 77% in vote, of voters in San Marino said yes to abortion up to birth. And bishops all over the world welcome politicians who publicly back abortion and same-sex marriage to receive the body and blood of Christ in Holy Communion, including in the UK. I believe that the truth about the sanctity of human life before birth, and about the truth and meaning of human sexuality, cannot triumph without the recognition of the truth about Jesus Christ in the Holy Eucharist.
1: We will only be able to recover
0: the proper understanding of the sanctity of human life and of God's purpose in the sacrament of marriage if we restore the understanding of the sanctity of divine life present in the Holy Eucharist and act accordingly. Thank you.